little girl was in church with her mother and her father was the vicar and he had just walked up the steps to the pulpit. Little girl nudged her mother and says, why does dad always shut his eyes before he preaches? And his mother said to, him, said to her, it's, it's because he's asking God to help him in his sermon. Oh, she said, well, why don't he do it? <laughs> now, if you're a child of the manse and you have to listen to your dad twice on a Sunday for 30 minutes each, you can appreciate the little girl's point of view. If you have to be the minister, then you can appreciate his as well. So will you join me in a brief prayer asking for God's blessing? Dear Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in the name of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. There has been something of a phenomena on British television since the 1970s and 80s. Today, we kind of call it, rather cheaply, a chat show. The great exponents, way back in my time when I watched it, were, of course, Terry Wogan and uh, the other fellow, Michael Parkinson. You know, on a Saturday night... The nation just stopped still to glue themselves to the TV when Parkey would introduce into his studio one, two, or even three people. And in his charming and humble way, he would ask questions in such a way that he was able to draw out from those people stories and anecdotes and situation and humour so that we were all tremendously entertained. Well, these people were well-known, less-known, and even some downright obscure. But it was a good evening, and it was compulsive viewing for many people, especially me, because the next programme that came on was Match of the Day that I dare not miss. <laughs> especially if my team were playing as they are today. It's our privilege tonight to be able to look at greatness close up. Every one of us, in a way, is fascinated by the lives of other people. We want to know about them. It's not because we're nosy. It's not either because we want material to gossip about. It's because we are just made that way. Dr Lloyd-Jones, who was the minister of Westminster Chapel for many years, he used to say in his Friday night lectures quite often, read the biographies. And he appealed to us as a congregation to get hold of the biographies of people who lived in the 17th and 18th century particularly. The age of the Puritans and the great men who preached, and then the expansion worldwide of the Christian church through pioneer missionaries. Well, we're for a little while going to take a look at Samuel. 
Somebody said to me this morning, we're praying for you that you won't give everybody indigestion. Well, I knew what they meant because there's so much material here to call upon. Here we're looking at greatness. But what is greatness? You know, R.T. Kendall of Westminster Chapel, a successor of Lloyd-Jones, once said this, Greatness is to be found only when three ingredients coincide. Genius, integrity, and crisis. And the omission of any of these three causes it not to be truly great. I have to say, I don't listen to today's um, chat shows. I I can't uh, enjoy Graham Norton and Jonathan Ross, or is it John Ross? I don't know, one of those two. (laughs) But I can't listen to them. I don't like their style or their stance. I think it's more to do with the people they have in the studio. They're described as iconic, or they're awesome, or they're great. They're even called heroes. Legends, they're celebrities, but they're usually quite small people who really have got very little to celebrate. But I think when we look at Samuel, we're looking in the scripture at somebody who was truly great. The last word of that definition by RT was crisis. And because of lack of time, I can't go into every detail concerning Samuel. I would bore you to tears. Not because his life was not credible, but because we haven't the capacity to take it all in in one go. And I've only got one shot at it. A crisis is a turning point. It's the point when things begin to happen and change. So we look at crisis one. Who was Samuel? Where did he come from? Well, Elkanah was a priest. He came from the tribe of Levi. And those of you who know your Bibles realize that Jacob, back in Genesis, had 12 sons. Levi Levi was one of them. All of the 12 sons gave their names to their successors, which became a tribe. The whole lot together were called the children of Israel, and they entered into the land of Canaan under Joshua. But only one tribe was not given a portion of land to look after, and that was Levi, because they were chosen by God to particularly look after the worship of God on behalf of the people. They would care for the tabernacle, that was a mobile church that could be dismantled and put together, and they had that to carry and move around as the tabernacle was needed to be moved. They were responsible for the sacrifices, the special festivals, the singing, the music. Oh, there was so much to being a Levite, and Elkanah was one of those. Levi had three sons, Gershon, Merari and Kohath. And it was through the line of Kohath that Elkanah comes to us, the father of this boy Samuel. 
So when we think of Samuel, we're talking now about a boy, a miracle baby even, that was born on, on prayer and tears. Elkanah had two wives. It wasn't illegal in those days. And uh, one was called Hannah and the other Penina. But God was good to them as a family, but Penina was the one who bore the children. Her womb was open and she delighted in the experience. But for poor Hannah, there was no children. She was barren. And in those days, particularly, as to some extent even today, childlessness is rather looked down upon. It was a stigma. And uh, she had to come to terms with that, but found it very hard. Elkanah was an understanding man, and he said to her, look, we may not have children, but you've got me. Aren't I more valuable than all the children? She didn't actually answer the question, but I'm sure she meant yes. The habit of the family, as they were priests and as they were Levites, would be to leave their hometown of Rama, because, you see, the Levites were apportioned places to live throughout the whole country. And there they were in the wilderness of Engedi, in the place of Rama. And they would go at least once a year and probably at other times too up to the tabernacle for the festivals. And on the occasion of one time, she was so praying almost wildly that the priest thought she was drunk. And when she explained what she was praying about, she wanted a child, well, you can see what happened. He encouraged her, prayed with her, and believe it or not, nine months almost to the day, Samuel was born. We need to thank God for good mothers. The reason is because this woman, Hannah, when the child she knew had conceived in her, said to the Lord, he's dedicated to you. She said on oath to him that he would become a Nazarite. No, no razor would come on his head. And furthermore, there would be no liquid of alcohol taken to his lips. She said, I'm going to give him back to you, Lord, from the time that he is properly weaned, which means when he's off the bottle or the breast. So he must have been taken to the tabernacle at a very early age. Now, I'm not sure if there was a nursery at the tabernacle at the time. I rather doubt it. So who brought him up? Well, we're left to speculate, but I rather think that Eli's wife had quite a lot to do with it. And then there was Hannah herself, who would make as many visits as she could to Rama, uh, from Rama to Shiloh, where the tabernacle was housed at that time. She would have been a wonderful mother had she had him at home with her so that she could bring him up. We have to be so careful not to, in our present day, so give in to financial pressures that we're always working. I want to suggest that there is no more nobler career for any woman 
than motherhood at its best. There are no possibilities greater in being able to bring up our children for the Lord. But there are no spheres in which it can be more dangerous and perilous than not being a good mother to our children. It was Abraham Lincoln who said, I remember my mother's prayers. They have always followed me. And D.O. Moody, the great evangelist, said, All that I have ever accomplished in my life, I owe to my mother. And George Herbert, the hymn writer, wonderful hymn writer, he says that the influence of a good mother is worth more than a thousand school teachers. Probably right. Now our country puts young women particularly on the line and says, go out and get some work done. There's nothing at all wrong with working mothers. But never let your work in any way detract you from your more serious responsibility of looking after the children and raising them well. So Samuel was taken to the tabernacle and there he stayed as a boy. He would help the priests as much as he could. He slept in the holy place, we read. He put out the candlestick at night. He would open the door in the morning to all the early worshippers. If you had a camera and you could picture him, he would be dressed in a white linen ephod. But secretly underneath his clothes, he'd be wearing a garment that his mother had made for him. And every year at the festival when she went up, you know that garment grew bigger and bigger and bigger because it was a fresh one every year. And oh, he was proud of his underclothes. The story of God speaking to him was the one that we read. And it's a story you knew before I read it. We sang it. And most people are instructed in it. This was really, you know, the first crisis or turning point of Samuel's life. But the question that comes to me is this. Why did God speak such an awesome message to a young boy? Now, we don't know how old he would have been. Josephus the Jewish historian tells us he was 12. But where he got the information from, I don't know. It's not in the Bible. Perhaps he was linking it with our Lord Jesus, who went up to Jerusalem for his bar mitzvah when he was 12. You remember? He was there and he was speaking with the wise men, the scribes and the Pharisees. Oh, he was to have a lot more conversations with them in the years to come. Why was he given this awesome message? I think two reasons. One, God wanted to train him from the earliest of years to be able to detect his voice. That he would be sympathetic and receptive. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. There's no better time in life then really get a good hold of God than when you're a child. You haven't got all the pressures of the world upon you, and you've got a simple faith which can hold on to God. 
This is how it was for him. He was training him in receptivity. So three times he comes to him and calls his name. But it was for a purpose. This boy Samuel was to grow up to be a prophet. So that everything that he learned from God, he was able to preach. Alexander White, when commenting on Samuel, said, He saw enough of God and man that terrible night to make him an old man and a seer before morning. (laughs) How true that was. A seer is one who sees. Isn't that obvious? But here was someone who saw the past, the present and the future. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Unfortunately, Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they were worldly men. They had impure motives and ambitions, although they were Levites in the tabernacle. They misbehaved themselves extraordinarily badly. That's quite modern, isn't it, with all our failure of vicars and pastors and Catholic priests that seem to all go astray these days. Friends, I think that this boy who listened to God would identify with this particular little song that we used to sing. Saviour, while my heart is tender... I would yield that heart to thee, all my powers to thee surrender, thine and only thine to be. Take me now, Lord Jesus, take me. Let my youthful heart be thine. Thy devoted servant make me. Fill my soul with love divine. I'm sure would have been a kind of Samuel prayer at that particular time. He was a boy who listened to God. Then came crisis too. Like the Lord Jesus, who Samuel prefigured, he had his growing up years in obscurity. We don't know about the early years of Jesus, only when he was young and then when he was 12 and then when he started preaching. It was similar for Samuel. What brought him to the attention of the wider public of Israel was the Philistine invasion. This warlike people who came from the west coast of Israel attacked Israel. They were successful in their attack and some 3,000 Israelites were killed. The Ark of God, that precious piece of Furniture that was in the tabernacle that housed the two tablets of stone where there was the Ten Commandments printed on it, that was stolen. You remember how they took it and put it in their temple to Dagon. And poor old Dagon, who wasn't a god at all, kept on falling flat on his face because of the ark. They came to conclude that it was a bit of an unlucky charm and wanted to get rid of it quick and put it on an ox cart and sent it back to the Israeli camp. But that conquest of the Philistines lasted for a very long time, something like 20 years. 
And during that time, Samuel's gift as a judge was well known, certainly in Israel. Let me read to you from chapter 3 again, verses 20 and 21. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, that's the whole country, from that distance to that distance, they, where have I lost my place now, to Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And during that year, those years, Samuel judged the people and had got to be known quite well. What really brought him to the public's attention was when he called the people to Mizpah in order that they may be saved from the Philistine conquest. It was because God had revealed himself to Samuel, and Samuel literally uncovered his ear so that he could hear the voice of God. You know, listening is not a bad thing to do. Most of us are not very good at it. Isn't it true that when you're talking to somebody, or when somebody more especially is talking to you, you're not really listening much at all? You're thinking about what you're going to say to them when they shut up. Isn't that true? But real listening says to people around us, you're important. I care about what you've got to say. And we bring to them a kind of dignity. And they go away thinking that they're a million dollars because someone has really listened to them. That was the training that this boy was given. Now a man. And he listened to the voice of God. Even when we come to our quiet time, some of us are very good at talking to God. But how few of us really listen to God? He doesn't speak to us quite like he would have done to Samuel because there was no recorded Words of God written down. But he would have, we, in our day, we would receive from God because of his word. And this book, the Bible, contains the word of God in its completeness. And as we read it, don't cast it aside once you've read your bit. Concentrate on it. Meditate on it. Be like the cow and chew it over and chew it over until you get all the, all the benefit from the grass that you're chewing. That's what he would have done. So he called all the people to Mizpah and he said to them, now we're going to go up and fight against the Philistines. When he did, under the direction of God, they were successful. But it wasn't the Israelites' victory at all. It was God's victory because he had sent thunder and lightning. The people of the Philistines panicked and ran. And they had peace from the Philistines. You know, they were so pleased with this, they set up a stone. And they called it Ebenezer. 
Now, and here's a Bible question. What does Ebenezer mean? That's right, yes. So far the Lord has blessed us. Now, for each one of us, if we call ourselves Christians, there should be in our hearts an Ebenezer. I know somebody who's got on their actual computer as a, as, as, as a sign, as a kind of entry to get into the computer, what they call them passwords, Mizpah. Because that means that it's the entry to God, it's the Ebenezer, he's helping, he's with us. Oh, that we may know something of the help of God. But do you seek God's help at all times? Psalmist knew about that. He says, I'm going to look to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord. Yes, the Lord. Mountains can't give you much help, but the Lord can. And he is our helper. And then when he was leaving, the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to send you a helper a comforter, the Holy Spirit. He will be like me with you all of the time and in you and growing in you and showing you my word. Oh, how we need to praise God for the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. This boy had an uncovered ear even when he was a man. He listened to God and found God's help. Crisis three. You know, Samuel was one of those men who wouldn't fall foul to the bandwagon syndrome. You know, when everybody says something, we all feel we've got to join in and support it. In 1 Samuel 8 and verse 19, we read this. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said. We want a king over us. They had made up their minds as people. The people at that time were turning to idols. The country was turning away from God. I like to look upon Samuel as being a kind of bridge between theocracy and monarchy. Until then, he would have been the last and 14th judge of Israel, and then would come the time of the kings, the ruling of man in a monarchy. It was as though the people were saying, we don't want you, God. We want to be like everybody else. The people pressed for a king like the other nations, and I want to tell you that there's no greater sign of backsliding in a Christian than when they want to be like the world. I can't help but feel sometimes that many of us live lives that are not that much radically different from our non-Christian friends around us. How are we distinguishable? I leave you to answer that one. Samuel was unimpressed with the trend of these people to have a king. He warned against it. He told them for very pragmatic reasons. He told them that if you have, if you have to have a king, you're going to need to pay for him. There'll be taxation. There'll be your young men who are going to have to join his army. There'll be fights and battles which he will lead, and then you've got to look after his palace and everything else to do with him. It's going to cost you. 
Well, it was a bad move as far as Samuel was concerned. And it, 1 Samuel 8, 18, it made no difference. The people were absolutely adamant. I think sometimes people miss out on greatness, this quality that we're looking at, because they are unable to handle criticism and rejection. Here were the people rejecting the one who had been their leader for something like 25 to 30 years. They were turning their backs on him. So that what Samuel did next was very surprising. He went to great pains to give them a king. The very thing that he said that he wouldn't do and didn't want to do, he did. Because he told them that he, he did it under the direction of God. He didn't say that he had done it in his own wisdom. He didn't say, I'm not doing this for you, but for God. He didn't actually tell them that. And why? Because he was too big a man to do that. He was not somebody who was inflexible. And a sign of maturity is that when it comes to it, sometimes you do have to make compromises. And if you're guided in such a way, how can you stick with a law that's really dragging you down? What I want to say under this crisis three is this. There was never a single time in the life of Samuel that he outgrew the need to listen to God. And so he was able to make the right decision and say, all right, if you want a king, you can have a king. Crisis four. What does a deposed, redundant judge do with his time and talents? Well, previously in 1 Samuel 7, Verse 15, it tells us what he used to do when he was the judge of Israel. It seems Samuel continued as judge over Israel all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah where his home was. And there he also judged Israel, and he built an altar there to the Lord. That was his work. It wasn't terribly exciting, just going about from place to place, speaking on behalf of God and judging the people when there were problems that had come up. A very ordinary kind of pastoral ministry to the people, but he faithfully did it for years. So what does he do now? He's put a king on the throne who now will take over all the responsibility that he previously had as the leader of Israel and their judge. Well, I guess he would do what every politician does when they get thrown out. He writes his memoirs. Well, he don't quite do it like that. He gives a farewell speech. And in this farewell speech, he made it clear that he had been faithful to God through his life. He rehearsed something of the history of Israel. 
And he showed to the people the nature of their sin. When the people had listened to him, they asked him, all right, you're going into a kind of retirement, but please pray for us. We need it. Oh, how wise they were in asking that. And what was his reply? How could I possibly sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you? Is prayerlessness a sin? Well, it appears to be. Never say to anybody, I will pray for you, and then not pray for them. That's sin. So that was our man. And uh, the second thing he did in what could be called his retirement was that he began a school of the prophets. In 1 Samuel 19, we can read a little bit about that in verses 19 and 20. When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Nioth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David is in Nioth at Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men and they also prophesied, probably much against their will, but they did. This school of prophets was something very special. This made more of a mark upon the world than anything else that survives to us out of Israel, Greece or Rome or any other country that should put up a Bible school. We owe the likes of David and Gad and Nathan. Alexander White again, he says, we owe a great deal to Old Testament preachers, psalmists, writers and students. So that the Divinity Hall at Rama that was founded by Samuel seems to me to have done a pretty good work. Something again he did in his older years. One thing that needs to be mentioned at this stage, and that was Saul's downfall. Uh, you remember how he was at that time having a battle with the Amalekites. Now, do you know about the Amalekites? They were descendants of Esau. The Bible says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. There was good reason for God taking that view. Esau and his descendants through Amalek were cruel, wicked, and did nothing but trouble. You remember how the time came when there was the battle with the two men on the hill holding up the arms of Moses. And there was a battle against the Amalekites, and the Israelites won. Well, it was to happen again. They were going to get victory over the Amalekites, and they got it. But God had said to Saul, now look, when you fight against them, I want you to destroy all their cattle and all their people. 
It wasn't that God was in favour of genocide, nothing of the sort. It couldn't be. But he wanted those people removed from the earth for good reasons. But you know what Saul was like. He was a weak man. And he didn't do what he should have done. Eventually, Samuel comes to him and he starts to making excuses to Samuel. Oh, I spared this one for this reason and that reason. And Samuel says to him, you know I can hear the bleating of sheep. Are they yours? No, he said, I kept those. Back. I thought that those ones that belonged to the Amalekites, they could be used in sacrifice. They're lovely sheep. He didn't do what he was told. And who's that fellow you got locked up? Oh, that's Agag. Agag? Oh, yes. He's the leader of the Amalekites. What did you spare him for? We know that Samuel himself brought judgment then upon Saul and he strode off and he went straight to Agag and destroyed him. That was a tough thing to do, but he did it. Oh, time's gone, but really, I must touch on crisis five. Samuel was given the task of finding a man to replace King Saul when he finished. A man after God's own heart. He was led to Bethlehem. I don't suppose he knew that the prophet was to say, and thou, Bethlehem, though thou be the least among all the children of Israel, yet out of you shall come one who shall be ruler over my people Israel. The Christmas prophecy. He wouldn't have known that. And yet it was to Bethlehem he went, ostensibly to offer a sacrifice. And he saw some of Jesse's sons. First of all, there was Eliab, great Great big bloke. There was Abinadab. Oh, he looked promising. There was Shammah. Again, he would be clever. He would make a good leader. No, none of these were suitable. Then in came, eventually, because he was sent for, a young, ruddy teenager with fine appearance and handsome features. And Samuel says, Ask the man man he was not much more than a boy but that was the one whom God had chosen how did Samuel know because he had ears to hear and he listened and God told him you see that was the pattern of his life he was not great because of himself, but he was great in history because of the great God he worshipped. Well, he died in the wilderness of Engedi, and he was buried rather peacefully in his own house in Ramah. But there was something rather sad. At the time, David was running as a fugitive from King Saul, who was jealous of him. But Samuel never ever saw David on the throne. And it's often like that, you know, in our lives. God reveals things to us, God does things through us. But we don't always know the result. But when we get to glory, perhaps we shall.
You know, God is building a kingdom. A kingdom where it will be ruled over by one of God's own heart, his own dear son. And we're going to sing about that. And let's do it to the glory of God. Hear the call of the kingdom. If you want to be a part of that kingdom, repent and believe the Lord Jesus Christ and he will be your saviour.